Well, happy Friday to everyone. Glad to be able to be on video with you. Uh, looking forward to sharing the word with you this special day. This uh, past few weeks, there's been a verse that's just been right at the front of my mind. Uh, I made it into this last week's sermon, and it's uh, been something that I had a hard time shaking. It's Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I know that when I say that, uh, many things might come to mind. I know that Christians oftentimes use that as a, as a phrase to be a bit of a, an encouragement to people in difficult times, and it should be used uh, during difficult times, especially as one believer is encouraging another. But I know that sometimes people misunderstand what we mean when we say that God works all things for good for the sake of those who are called according to his purpose. It does not mean that God will keep bad things from happening to believers. It's not what it's saying. It also does not mean that God is like the ambulance driver who shows up after the accident to clean up the mess. God can take terrible things and work them for our good. To say it even stronger, God will ordain for terrible things to happen to believers for our good. I think the clearest example of this that we have in the entire Bible is the cross. And on this very specific day, it's particularly helpful to think about it and what it means for us. I want to go to Matthew chapter 16 in our text for tonight. I want to show you this passage because it's where Jesus is about to declare to his disciples that he will certainly have to die. You hear their response and then what he says in return. If you have your Bibles with you, you want to go there right now, we're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 13 uh, through 28. I'll just read those out loud, pray, and then go back through again. Now when Jesus came unto the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, on this very evening, as we celebrate Good Friday, I pray that you will help us to see what it is that Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples. Father, we desire to be disciples of Jesus. Disciples who make disciples, who multiply more and more disciples, who teach those disciples to observe everything that Jesus commanded, even passages like this one. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to soak in deeply the meaning of this special, significant, all-important day. And help us to understand how you meant to use a terrible incident for our great good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to the beginning of that passage again in verses 13 through 15. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus knows what people think about him. Jesus has been preaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out demons. He's been with people his entire life. He knows what people think about him because oftentimes they say it or they act in such a way that it makes it clear what they think about him. He knows that some people think that he's a good teacher. Some might even just find him amusing and maybe interested in the message that he might have to share. Perhaps he speaks with such a kind of authority that people are drawn to him as a public speaker. It might even be the fact that people want to hear wisdom from him. General ethical values, virtue, that if they were, to ab- they were able to acquisition and act upon such virtues, that good would come from it. Some people even think that he's a prophet. He's, he's Elijah of the Old Testament or Jeremiah. Some even say that he's John the Baptist, who just a couple of chapters earlier is said to have been beheaded. Maybe he actually evaded, uh, he wasn't beheaded, and now at, he's actually out in the wilderness and that Jesus is actually John the Baptist in disguise. Maybe something like that. Still, others see Jesus as a charlatan, a liar, an illusionist who deceives the masses with his tricks. In fact, this chapter begins with the Pharisees interacting with Jesus and they are demanding to see a sign and Jesus says, no, I won't show you one. You see, they wanted to see confirmation that he was who everybody thought that he was. Somebody touched by, gifted by, blessed by God. They weren't looking for entertainment. They wanted to see what he could do. But for those Pharisees, their hearts were hardened. They were well aware of his miracles. They'd observed them uh, several other times already in the book of Matthew and rejected him anyway. But Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? You know, what a person thinks about Jesus is the most important thing about that person. 
It will determine a person's eternal destiny. There is no more important question that can be asked of you. You know, recently I've been grieving the lack of face-to-face Christian fellowship. And so uh, maybe in a moment of weakness, I decided to log back in uh, to Facebook. It's been many years since I've been on there altogether. Uh, I wanted to connect with other believers, put out helpful videos and content, manage the the Mission Church Facebook site especially when I knew that we wouldn't be face-to-face for a while. And I am quickly reminded by the reasons that I had for getting off of Facebook in the first place. People have opinions about everything. And it is scary just how committed to those opinions people can be. But I have found it helpful to remember that the one opinion that really matters is what a person thinks about Jesus. And it is worthy labor for us to make all of our other opinions align under him. Jesus asks again, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter speaks up on behalf of the disciples as is typical for him and he gets it exactly right. Notice, he calls Jesus the Christ. That's the anointed one, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament to be sent by God to rescue his people. But he gets even more than that right because he calls Jesus the son of the living God. Not a son, not as a general statement of humanity that all, that all mankind are, in a sense, children of God. Peter understands something distinct. He is the son of the living God. He's acknowledging that there is something truly supernatural, God-blessed in this man. And while he may not quite have it all worked out yet, he is definitely a genuine believer. And listen to Jesus' response. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus responds to Peter when, Jesus, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. You're darn right I am. And he does not attribute that understanding to Peter's own intellect, but to revelation. You know this, Peter, because my father in heaven revealed this to you. You would not have known that in the way that you do if it weren't for him revealing that to you. This is one of our favorite passages as Christians because this is where Jesus so clearly and emphatically guarantees the success of his church. And you notice here that the triumph of Jesus' church is not dependent on people, even Peter, even these disciples, even for the person who might want to say that Revelation is the rock or that Peter is the rock, the point that's being made here 
clearly and definitively is that Jesus says, I will build my church. He will build it. And there is a zero chance of failure. I want you to think about this for a moment. Quarantine, um, although discomforting, although uh, frustrating perhaps for some, is not a hiccup in Jesus' plan to build his church. I have to admit that I hate being separated from other believers, especially on days like this one where for my entire life I can, I can remember back to memories of meeting together with believers on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, on this special weekend, when we especially bring to mind that important time. But you and I should not think for a moment that this is a setback for the kingdom. Perhaps, rather than just praying it away, we should pray, Lord, how? How can we use this moment to bring you greater honor as we work to build your kingdom? You see, he has promised to build his church and it will be built without fail. We have endured far greater trials than this. Man, who wouldn't want to hear this? Isn't it great being reminded by this again? We could revisit this all the time as we we do quite often because... It's such a beautiful truth. It is all positive. It is good news. And that is why no one was expecting what Jesus would say next. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Quick recap for a moment. Jesus just says, I am the Messiah, the promised one, the rescuer of Israel. It is I who will build my church. In fact, you don't even know that, Peter, unless my father said that. There's confirmation from the father that I am the Christ. I am the only son. I am going to build an unstoppable church and I will die. It is significant that right on the heels of this beautiful promise of kingdom building victory, Jesus begins to teach about his death and his resurrection. I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus makes some predictions. He makes five specific predictions I think we could count it out to be. First, he says that he must go to Jerusalem. Then he says that he must suffer many things. And this suffering would be at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes. That's the religious leaders of the day. Then he says that he will be killed. And lastly, on the third day, he will be raised. That one even has specific qualifications of the the kind of day that he'll be raised. The third day after dying. There are very specific things here that cannot be mistaken for anything short of prophecy. Jesus is foretelling things that would be out of the control of any mere man. Perhaps with the only exception of we'll go to Jerusalem. Maybe a man could make that claim and perhaps pull it off. But all the other things are clearly out of his control and he knows certainly what will happen and it must happen. And this is not what Peter and the other disciples expected. And the fact that it's so unexpected for the disciples to hear is made clear by Peter's response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
Peter totally misses it. He goes from the best statement to the worst. You, you are the Messiah. You will not die. He in effect says, you are the Son of God and you are wrong. Peter was thinking with his flesh. He was drawing on worldly thinking. I want you to notice, he doesn't even acknowledge the resurrection. You saw that, that was one of those five things Jesus said. He predicted that he would be raised on the third day. Peter doesn't even acknowledge that. Here's what I mean by that. Certainly, Peter did not mean to say, you shall never raise from the dead, Jesus. He was talking about Jesus' suffering. You shall not suffer. You shall not die. Far be it from you, Lord, to die. A crucified Savior is nonsense to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that. For the word or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. This wrong understanding of Jesus' crucifixion and this missing the critical element of his resurrection is so common in the world. More than a billion people today in the world, I'm thinking specifically Muslims, who who have made this a doctrine that Jesus did not die. In fact, many laugh at the idea that the Savior of the Christians was mocked, ridiculed, suffered, beaten, and crucified. And they think this way without even acknowledging that he then raised himself from the dead. Jesus' prediction defied reason. How could he promise to build his church and then die? Not only that, but Jesus' prediction defied expectations, even the cultural expectations of the people of his day. Many people expected that the Messiah would become the king, the literal king, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, kicking out all the enemies, the the Roman occupiers of that day, uh, literally leading his people, received by the religious authorities amongst him. In fact, Old Testament prophecy often refers to the coming of the Messiah and the establishing and consummation of his kingdom as a single event. It looks like one event oftentimes in the Old Testament. And this is why so many people were confused about Jesus who didn't seem to be doing what they thought the Messiah would do. But now Jesus was saying that not only would he not be their earthly king in that way, not only would he be rejected by the Jewish leaders, rather than received, but he would have to suffer and die. Every generation foists its expectations on Jesus. Have you noticed that before? There's almost nothing that you can, you can get around with this one. One generation after the next, they might emphasize different things about him, but they all foist distinct expectations upon him. This is why it is so important to read the word and to accept what Jesus tells about himself. Your opinion of Jesus, that same opinion that I said was so critical, must be informed by what he says. His testimony about himself is more important than even your and my thoughts about him. Who do you say I am? Peter was in agreement with who Jesus was, with who Jesus said that he was. But he was in disagreement with what Jesus said that he must do. 
And Jesus is about to tell of his opinion of Peter's rebuke. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Remember, Jesus' enemies already wanted him to die. They had begun plotting his death back in chapter 12. That was the point where uh, Jesus entered into a synagogue and there were Pharisees present. And there was a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees set up a trap to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. And then they could pin working on the Sabbath on Jesus. And from that point forward, when Jesus healed that man anyway, they conspired to kill him, to destroy him. His enemies wanted him dead. But up until this point in the book of Matthew, the only one who tried to get Jesus off his path to death, the only one so far who tried to prevent him from heading to the cross, was Satan. Back in chapter 4, he promised to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world without bleeding. Satan was the only one who had tried to dissuade Jesus from his plan until now. Now, Peter is agreeing with Satan. Don't die, Jesus! I think he's doing this without realizing what he's saying. This is why Jesus says, don't stand in my way. Don't be a hindrance to me. That's Satan's path. Remember, Peter will try the same thing again with even more vigor in the Garden of Gethsemane as he draws his sword to stop Jesus from going to the cross one last time. Even for the person who believes in Jesus, to disagree with and try to thwart his plans is demonic. Now why did Peter say this? Jesus tells us why. Because he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He was thinking of earthly things with an earthly reason rather than what God had in mind. An unafflicted Savior is a thing of man, but a suffering Savior, that is a thing of God. You know, as people, humans, we want comfort, not suffering. If we can imagine a path without suffering and a path with it, which do we choose? We are prone, just like water, to take the path of least resistance. This is a natural course for us. This is very human-like. But Jesus goes after our desire for comfort. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus lays out for his disciples a path that is entirely contrary to what our flesh wants. It is natural for us to want to avoid suffering, avoid pain, and avoid death. It's not even wrong to want to save your life. This is not asceticism. This is not a desire for suffering. In fact, the motivation that Jesus gives for losing your life is that you will find it. You want to find your life. You want to profit, as we'll say next. 
Of course you want to save your life. Of course you want to profit and to benefit. But the path to ultimate profit, the path to eternal life, is not the path that avoids all suffering. It wasn't for Jesus, and it won't be for us. A pain-free path is not an option. This is not negotiable. When Jesus describes his death and commands his disciples to follow, he's not trying to justify a glitch in his plan. He is describing the strategy for victory. We are not going to win this thing by preserving our lives, but by laying down our lives. Now, while this seems so counterintuitive to us, there is no greater example for how this can happen than Jesus' death on the cross. There is only one giver of true joy that exists, the creator of all joy. He is the source of all good, of all pleasure, the source of the satisfaction of all desire, the desires of our heart. But we have sought to find joy in things other than him. And this is true for every one of us. All of us have traded the creator for the creature, the creator for things that he has made. And we have sought to find our pleasures satisfied in anything other than him. And because of that, we deserve to get exactly what we were aiming for. We deserve to get things of this earth rather than the things of God. This means that in the end, we do not deserve heaven with him, but we deserve separation from him for all eternity. And this puts man squarely in the worst possible path that you can imagine. People all around the world right now are, are going crazy over the potential that this virus might have to humanity. This is laughably nothing compared to the problem of sin. The lasting value of something like COVID-19 is nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a blink of an eye. It's like a vapor compared to eternity. Especially when we compare that to eternity spent apart from God. And this is what all of us deserve because of our sin. We have chosen things over God. But God displayed his glorious perfections, his mercy, his grace, his love by sending his only son to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things at the hands of the, the chief priests, the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees to be killed and to be raised on the third day. This terrible event was to display his glorious grace and it was meant for our eternal good. We can have this eternal good. If we forsake those creaturely things of the earth and we, we look to and love and believe in him instead. By believing in Jesus Christ, looking to him on the cross, seeing him as most to be honored, most to be valued, most to be treasured. In doing that, we can have eternal life. The death that Jesus died on the cross can be the death that we deserved. And that happens by faith in him. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is, this is how God used the most terrible event in all of history. 
and worked it to become the basis of the greatest eternal good that a man could possibly have. This is so counterintuitive that the most horrendous day is the basis for our everlasting joy. And that is why we call this Friday good. Let's pray. Father, you have been so wonderful. You have been so gracious. You have been so kind, so generous, so merciful. We can't even imagine the greatness of your love. But Lord, you have given us a picture of it in Jesus on the cross, and we are grateful for that. Father, it is so easy to misunderstand uh, the difficulties and the trials that we deal with on a daily basis. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in the the little things that are difficult in our lives that we, we forget that you are in control, that you have a bigger and greater purpose in mind. Father, this very good Friday, I ask that you would give us the gift of understanding. Give us the gift of focus on the truth that Jesus died on this day that we celebrate. A terrible, awful, horrendous, wicked death so that we could live in heaven forever with you. Father, help us to love you most. Help us to not fear the things that are happening in the world. Help us to trust that what you are working is for our good. Help us to celebrate rightly. Help us to remember our sins as the backdrop of the cross as we focus on and fix our eyes on Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.